0: Hello, it's Peter here. It's time for another episode from our archive. This one concerns one of the most disturbing episodes in the Second World War. It's with the writer Jane rogoyska who in 2021 told me all about her work on the Katyn massacre. Surviving so Katyn is a like terrifying and absorbing book. I'm going to start with a quote which comes from Sir Alexander Cadogan, and he said in 1943 I confess that in cowardly fashion, I had rather turn my head away from the scene at Katyn for fear of what I should find there. I thought maybe it would be good if you started by grounding this story and telling us what he was alluding to in that quote.
1: It's a very interesting quote, isn't it? So in April 1943, the German army announced to the world with great glee on the part of Goebbels um, particularly, that they had discovered mass graves containing the bodies of several thousand Polish officers. And they were saying that the people responsible for this massacre uh, were what they used to call the Bolsheviks, the the Soviets. This set off the most enormous political row, um, because at that time, as you'll be familiar, the Soviet Union was allied to the West. Um, And here was everybody's greatest enemy announcing, pointing a finger of accusation at the West's most important ally. And uh, as soon as the announcement went out by uh, German radio, the Soviets issued a a very, very angry denial, saying that they were not responsible for this massacre. It was the Nazis who'd done it and they... uh, claimed that it was uh, done in 1941 instead of April 1940, which was the date which uh, the Germans had put forward. So the British and the Americans were, found themselves caught in the middle of this escalating row, which for, for a while absorbed everybody's attention internationally. Um, and it put the Allies in a very tricky position. And I think what Cadogan is referring to there specifically um, is as more information Came in, and it became increasingly evident to the Allies through the um, information which the Polish government in exile were putting before them that the Germans, in this case, were actually telling the truth and that the murdered men had been killed by the Soviets. It became harder and harder to find a way through it politically and diplomatically because, of course, the British could not afford to offend Stalin, nor could the Americans. So they uh, turned their heads away, I suppose. that That's what Kadugan is referring to at that stage. And there's, there's a really
0: important second dimension to what he was saying. I'm not sure if this is part of the same quote or his sentiments from later on, but he also makes a makes a point that you engage with right at the beginning of the book, which is, in purely numerical terms, the death of fourteen thousand five hundred Poles, which is the number of people found in these mass graves, at the hands of the 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 Soviet interior ministry, the NKVD, is that right? Was no. insignificant compared to the millions of Soviet citizens who had died under Stalin's regime. So the obvious question is what was so important about this find and these victims?
1: Well I suppose there are two different ways of answering that question because it depends when you're looking at it, what perspective you're looking at it from. So the point that you refer to at the beginning of the book is really looking at it in the larger context of what we know since the war and the you know, cumulative knowledge about Stalin and what he did to his own citizens and that the enormity of the crimes committed against Soviet citizens. In 1943, when Cadogan is, you know, referring to these graves, um, and in fact, there, there's I, maybe I had better clear up something right from the outset, which is a, a common and understandable um, misunderstanding. So the Katyn massacre is commonly understood to refer to a single event. But in fact, there were three different sites um, that that they were talking about during the war. There were three prison camps um, to which the Polish prisoners were taken. When they uncovered the bodies in the Katyn Forest, these were actually only the bodies of the officers from a single camp, although the Germans, in the pursuit of propaganda, uh, gave out far larger figures because they knew that a much larger number of officers were missing. So in the context of the war, the, the numbers were, were less important than, than the shock. So actually putting it in the context of the war, you, you need to remember the fact that the Holocaust uh, was not the thing that we understand it to be now in the public imagination. The fullness of Nazi crimes were was not known and the fullness of Stalin's crimes were not known. So actually... To find several thousand polish officers and there was it was specifically very shocking that these were officers who had previously been prisoners of war and therefore not considered prisoners or criminals but prisoners of war who had been taken prisoner on the field of battle in september nineteen thirty nine that this was a really profoundly shocking thing um, and of enormous importance, and that the the, the Difficulty for Poland. (laughs) So Poland occupied a very inconvenient position, having been the country for which Britain and France went to war. But they were strategically, obviously, a very unimportant ally in the sense that they were an occupied country who had a government in exile and a partial army abroad. But um, you know, they they were nothing in the fight against Hitler compared to what. The Soviet Union brought. So for Churchill, for Roosevelt, um, you know, for all the, the British and American politicians, the, the primary thing that they had to focus on was defeating Hitler. And therefore, uh, shocking as the events of Katyn were, and Churchill did acknowledge the fact that he considered it highly likely that the Soviets were responsible, you know they had to press on with the war and 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 brush it under the carpet for the sake of a uh, victory over over Hitler, who was really responsible. And the Poles, you know, fairly quickly cottoned onto this. From the Allied perspective, you were talking about a place so that the Katyn Forest lies near Smolensk in Russia, and it had been originally in Soviet hands, and then when the um, balance of the war changed in June 1941 when the Germans turned on their former ally and invaded uh, the Soviet Union. Um, that area then was occupied by the Germans, um, and which is why the Soviets were able to point an accusatory finger and say, it was you that did it. And then later, as the Soviet army pushed back, it then came under Soviet occupation again. So from the Allied perspective, there was absolutely no way of Checking and verifying the truth of all these competing assertions, and it was a real war of words in in April May nineteen
0: forty three. So right, at, right at the heart of this story, from the very beginning, is this element of disquieting mystery. It's the vanishing. I know at one point in the book when the, there is the formation of um, a new Polish army. After the, um, after the German invasion of Russia and, and the dynamics all mm. suddenly changed very quickly. And they're looking for these officers. And I think you state that their absence is so obvious. They're just nowhere to be found. And it's a bit like looking at a school photograph and the sixth form having been taken away. It's just banished. And I think that speaks to one of the points that I think is worth stressing at this point this was the leadership of the Polish army but also wider than that it was people of incredible significance in Polish society who had just vanished. Absolutely and
1: right? I suppose to draw a sort of comparison if you think about it so these were officers who were captured as they retreated from the Nazi invasion in September 9, 1939 and they fell right into the hands Of the Red Army, which on the seventeenth of September, nineteen thirty-nine, only just two weeks after, um, you know, just over two weeks after the German invasion, invaded Poland from the east and um, captured, you know, well over a quarter of a million um, Polish military. They kept the officers in special NKVD-run interrogation camps, and the makeup of these men, as you say, they were not just professional military men. So obviously a large proportion of them were, you know, top officers, generals, 11 generals, you know, lieutenant colonels, colonels, uh, naval uh, personnel. But over 50% of them were reservists. Um, There was compulsory um, military service in the 1930s in Poland, and many of them had been mobilized, you know, literally as war broke out. Um, very recently. Some had been mobilised so recently that they actually went to war or were captured even before they got into their uniforms. And so the, the reservists were, were from the professional classes. These were doctors, lawyers, judges, teachers, journalists, poets, artists, engineers, academics, You know, you name it. There were people from... Every sector of um, Polish professional society, so yes it, uh, that and that analogy that I use in the book of the the, the the photograph with the six full missing really expresses it you know this sense of mystery that when when the tide of the war turned so suddenly as you say, and the Poles were allowed to form an army on Soviet soil under Polish command and under the sort of allied umbrella. Um, General Anders, who was responsible for gathering all these people, was uh, and he had been a prisoner in the Lubyanga, so he was unaware of what had been going on, was in daily expectation of finding his officers, many of them obviously his personal friends, colleagues, people that he'd fought with at the beginning of the war. Um, And as I suppose there's a a kind of wider context which uh, has to be explained here, which is that in 1940, when the, after the Soviets had established a kind of zone of occupation in uh, the eastern territories of Poland, parts of which they annexed to become Western Belarus and Belarussia and Western Ukraine, um, they deported vast swathes of the population, the Polish population, from those areas. So it wasn't just that there were these officers who were missing who'd been in the camps. There were hundreds of thousands of Polish citizens, civilians and military who had been sent to Siberia, to Kazakhstan, all over the place to uh, collective farms and uh, work labour camps. So when they started forming the army, all of these people were freed; They were liberated and they, they tried, had to find a way to join the army and to try to get out of, of the Soviet Union.
0: So I'm going to ask you um, this inciting question, which um, we put to everyone who comes on the podcast, which is, if you could travel back through time, which year would you pick to visit?
1: Well, so I've chosen the year 1940. I, I admit that this was a very difficult choice because this story does span several decades. And I settled on 1940 because it is the crucial, pivotal vital moment in time which is when the Katyn massacre actually happened. Okay
0: Um, let's before we go close to this history do a broader look at the year 1940. Of course from a Polish perspective 1939 is the uh, and September 1939 is the um, moment of the Nazi invasion and of course there's this you know kind of moment when things go from bad to worse as the Soviets invade from the East. is if, just Could you sketch that Eastern bit of um, the conflict for us in Poland and the Soviet Union for us, please, as 1940 begins?
1: So by the time we reach 1940, the whole of Poland is essentially divided into two. So on the one side, you've got the areas of Nazi occupation, and in the Eastern zone, you've got the zone of Soviet Occupation, and um, what the Soviets had done in November nineteen thirty nine is essentially um, formed from what are known in Polish as the Kresy, the borderlands, these kind of disputed eastern areas of um, Poland, and they had uh, added them onto um, Belarusia and Ukraine as uh, to be later formally part of the Soviet Union. Poland was a fully occupied country so that as you say that the battles were lost um they fought uh you know they were invaded by the Nazis and 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 as you suggest the the part of the, the British narrative you know tends to go oh you know we went to war for Poland in the beginning of September 1939 and then mm. nothing happened for quite a long well, time. Exactly <laughs> we
0: talk of we talk of this phony yeah. war that goes right through to the invasion of France yeah. and of course there was other things happening. There were
1: many other things happening and particularly for anyone in Eastern Europe, you know, that, that complexity is, is incredibly, uh, it's a very, very difficult and different perspective, whether you're from Poland or Ukraine or Belarus or the Baltic countries in any of those countries. Um, so as we enter 1940, so one of the, so obviously the, the scene that I need to set is what why these officers have ended up in these camps. So, When the Red Army invaded eastern Poland, one of the main objectives that Stalin had right from the outset, which he achieved long term, um, was to make sure that these eastern parts of Poland uh, remained in Soviet hands and in order to achieve that you know one of the most important things that was the sort of Soviet behavior if you like was to behead intellectually a, a, and uh, culturally any occupied area and in fact the Nazis were busily engaged on doing the same thing at roughly the same time in fact of making sure that intellectuals, leaders, politicians, anyone with a capacity to foment rebellion uh, to to occupy a position of leadership would be removed from the equation to enable the um, you know the the, the the flattening and the the occupation of of the area.
0: Yeah, you talk of the. I mean, another little bit of context here is the miracle of the Vistula. I think you you mentioned which had taught Stalin a bitter enduring lesson that Poland could not be converted to communism. Mm. This is a battle from twenty years before.
1: Mm. You know, the, 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 a slightly further important context, actually, as far as Poland is concerned, is of course, you know, Poland as a independent country had been a um, influential and wide ranging, influential country back in the eighteenth century, but had been partitioned serially, you know, three times by its larger neighbours over the late eighteenth and nineteenth century, um, by Austria Hungary. Prussia, Germany and uh, Russia. Uh, At one point, Poland had even disappeared completely off the map and it had only regained its independence after the First World War. And the territorial gains in the border areas on the east and on the west um, were disputed by both Soviet Russia and by the Germans. And obviously these areas where borders shift are often flashpoints um, in conflict. So, uh, yes, and the miracle of the Vistula was uh, the Polish-Bolshevik war in 1920 where Marshal Pusutsky had held back the hordes of invading uh, uh, Red Army soldiers and had, you know, uh, Adam Zboszewski argues very um, convincingly that basically this prevented the spread of communist revolution into Western Europe. It's, it's not a very well-known battle um in the West, but it was a very important one. And as you said, I think it it, uh, it it Stalin was involved in that battle and uh it gave him an insight into just how sort of recalcitrant and independent minded, as if he didn't know already, um, Poland was, and that you it was not a country that you could ever fully absorb into the Soviet Union. So you had to conquer it indirectly and by different means. Mm.
0: Well Where would you like to go for your first scene? Can you tell us where and when?
1: So it's March 1940. So the prisoners have been in these camps since September, October 1939. Spring is just about to arrive. And we're in Sarabias camp in the Soviet Ukraine. And Bronislaw Winarski was by profession a businessman. He was the deputy director of a shipping line. His uh, main passion was music. He came from a very prominent musical family in Poland. His father was a well-known conductor and composer. At this point, the prisoners have been allowed to correspond with their families since November December nineteen thirty nine. They're installed in the newly built barracks, which Major Zaleski has had such a played such a role in constructing. Although I perhaps should mention the fact that Major Zaleski and his deputy were removed from the camp at Christmas um, since they were no longer necessary to the NGVD and disappeared without trace, um, but were in fact killed along with the other the other victims. And one of the aspects in the camp were stray dogs. So around Sarabos camp, they would hang these gangs of hungry, mangy stray dogs and they would try to make their way through the camp gates and they'd sneak in behind a, you know, wagon delivering something and the men the prisoners formed incredible bonds with these mangy dogs and I think there's a a kind of wonderful sense of the the kind of despair of their situation the fact that, that, that these starving dogs and these Spiritually hungry men found such companionship together, and many of the prisoners sort of adopted dogs as their sort of friends and pets. And in particular, there was a well-known Warsaw vet um, who was known for you know trying to help. Uh, you know, he would sort of comb their fur with its little tin um, combs to try and get rid of their fleas. He'd put their if they had a sore leg, he'd put it in a sort of makeshift splint, and some of the some of the adopted pets had sort of nicknames you know they had, there was one called Linek, which is short for Stalinek which means little Stalin I think he had quite a big moustache and then Wynarski and his friends had adopted this dog called Foch named after uh, Ferdinand Foch the First World War French uh, commander-in-chief of the French armies who was the possessor of a very fine moustache and Foch was a very strange uh, he had a very strange uh, routine so he would appear in the camp during the weekdays, and they would disappear at the weekends. And um, Winnarski and his friends developed this theory that perhaps he had an owner who worked when came back at the weekends. And so they started writing little messages, which they would hide under the collar. Um, uh, that were not, not under the collar. They'd tie it on a piece of string on, on, under the dog's fur. And, you know, they were ever hopeful of getting some sort of response from it. And nothing happened and nothing happened. And then uh, Fock disappeared and um, suddenly reappeared in March 1940 so this is the the moment that I wanted to focus upon and Fock reappears and he's looking very sort of bedraggled and scraggy and when he comes to his adopted owners they find a little note tucked under his fur and the note says I'm just going to find it for you uh, so the kind of notes which um, Wenarski and his friends had been sort of sending were things like, "What do people think of us? Do you really love the Germans? Do you suffer from cold and hunger as we do?" And then, in the second half of March, nineteen forty, just after the end of the Soviet-Finnish War, they found the dog, and around his neck was a tiny bag made of cigarette paper, with an inscription in small, distinct Russian characters, and it said, "Dear friends." According to rumours, you will soon be leaving Starobelsk. People are also saying that you might go home. Whether this is true, we don't know. We hate the Germans as much as you do. May God protect you.
0: It's um. There's so much here that we can. I suppose analyse. There's the tender image of of you know the companionship as you mentioned between the prisoners and the dogs. There's the. I don't know, these pseudo-personalities are transposed onto the the dogs. and and There's one called Winston. Yes, yes. apparently he didn't look
1: anything like a bulldog, but there we go. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And so that's something to ponder. But this level of communication that they afford, which isn't something that you'd really imagine to be the case with dogs, but maybe it's just one of these organic things which sprang up around the camp. Yeah, it's completely fascinating because when you are so isolated... And I know you said by this point they were allowed to send like a postcard a month to a family member back. But I I think it's very difficult for us in this world of such saturation of information where we know everything about everywhere all the time to put ourselves in the position of of complete ignorance.
1: Well, it's a a moment which I particularly love, but it's actually also deeply significant because it's the first sign of rumours which were going to grow stronger and stronger that the men were about to leave. Now, ever since they'd been captured, there'd been rumours swirling around the camps saying, you know, we're going to go home, we're going to go, you know, there's going to be a prisoner exchange. And particularly during the height of the, you know, Nazi-Soviet alliance, you know, talk about prisoner exchanges, all kinds of things. And then in March, these rumours accelerate. And the reality is that they were cultivated very carefully by the NKVD. And so, This story of this dog and the idea that perhaps it was a local person who kindly wrote... Becomes far more sinister. Becomes far more sinister because actually it's just as possible and probably more likely that this little note was written by somebody from the NKVD because... The other things that started happening at around this time, so there was a kind of general air of excitement, and um, so staying in Starobiel's camp with uh, Bronislaw Wynarski and where Joseph Chapsky was also a prisoner, to two survivors, so we have accounts from both of them, you, you get this tremendous sense of anticipation that builds up. And, you know, a guard will knock on the door in the middle of the night, poke his head through the door and say, does anyone here speak Greek or Romanian? And then disappears again and everyone's left. Going, oh, what's this mean? What's this mean? Oh, it means we're going, we're heading south. It means we're going to be allowed to go to a neutral country. We can continue fighting, which is what obviously what most of them wanted to do. Um, or, you know, a an itinerary was found, sort of dropped on the floor, which you know again gave an indication of a route that might be taken, which again suggested that the men were going to be taken west. They were given questionnaires to fill out in which they were given three choices about uh, where they would like to go after they left the camp. Would they like to, A, remain in the Soviet Union, B, return to Nazi-occupied Poland, or C, go to a neutral country? I mean, the third one is a, is an odd one, but the, I think the majority of people chose, the prisoners chose that particular option. But what I'm trying to get across here is the fact that the air of excitement was really expertly and carefully cultivated by the NKVD Mm. to the extent that when the men come to depart, they leave joyously, which in fact takes us to my second scene.
2: Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. At Colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colourgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout.
0: Let's keep going because it feels that there's a natural progression here between what you've been explaining about this sense of careful manipulation of the mood inside the camp and what we're going to see next. Do you want to tell us what it is for your second?
1: Please? Yes. So the second scene is just a few weeks later. It's April 1940, and we're still in Starobielsk camp in the Soviet Ukraine. And Commissar Kirshin, who is the um, leading political uh, officer of the NKVD in Starobielsk camp, along with uh, camp commandant Bereshkov, is standing on the steps of the ruined church and he's watching as the transports of men begin to depart and so they began in early April um, and transports ranging from you know 60 to 80 men to 100 to a couple of hundred and they would go out every few days and um, he stood there and he said to uh, Chapsky he said you're leaving for a place where I would like to go myself which in the context of what was happening is more than sinister, it's it's appalling. In the context of how the men felt at the time, people like Chapsky and Wunarski, who would survive, found themselves in a dwindling number of people remaining in the camp while their comrades were all, they believed, being sent home.
0: Yeah, I think think the um, similarity or the parallel that people will think of immediately when they listen to your description of this is... And almost, it's almost like an inversion of the going east, which we we know was a euphemism for what happened to the Jewish people in Europe. And it was always left open-ended, as if people never really wanted to fill in that gap. Or, or we have going west, the idea of going home, but without any um clarity to what this means, which is incredibly sinister. And I think all the time what you portray in the book is this um, kind of laconic politeness of the Soviet officials Mm -hmm. who are Mm. um, overseeing this whole thing, which has a great deal of stage management.
1: Later in the story, you see patterns of behaviour in the NKVD, which are really astonishing in the parallels that you find in what goes on today when some of the more notorious recent Interventions, for example, with Navalny or the Skripal poisoning, modus operandi, which really clearly are just set in a pattern which which doesn't vary. In the case of Katyn, I I think so. The terror is a really good thing to bring up. So, the 1937 to 38 terror, the reality of which was very little known in the West at that time. You know, people knew perhaps about the sort of purges of the generals, but they, they were not really fully aware of the enormity of the extent of the murderous activities that Stalin had initiated against Soviet citizens and indeed against um, one of the first targets were ethnic Poles in the Soviet Union. I think Katyn is an exception in the sense that the reason why they go to such incredible lengths to conceal this, is the status of these men. So firstly, they're foreign nationals, so they're not Soviet citizens. They're foreign nationals and somebody's going to be asking about them at some point. And secondly, they're prisoners of war. And even in the kind of warped Bolshevik mentality, this is a very different kind of murder than the murder that you perpetrate on individuals that you happen to politically finding convenient or, you know, sending somebody off to a gulag and uh, basically you're condemning them to death. But uh, death is a byproduct of the awfulness of the conditions that they have to endure in places like Siberia. So the deliberateness, um, you know, the, the, there was a very, very similar mass grave discovered in April 1943 in Vinnytsia, Ukraine. I, I'm not an expert on that by any means, uh, but the, the the victims there were shot in the back of the head in exactly the same way that the Polish victims were uh, and buried in mass graves under a, a, a recreational NKVD park. But I don't know whether the same degree of effort was expended in uh, the pursuit of secrecy.
0: I know, it's just uh, it is flabbergasting now on if you put it into the terms of uh, there's a lot of highly intelligent people in this camp who are suspicious they may be uncertain i know that you said before the soviet union was not a signatory to the geneva convention of 10 years ago but i think they would have what they would have expected i i'm not sure but what makes this so chilling is the theatricality of it the total efficiency of it i think which is which is stunning really that you have so many people leaving and on timetables in trains which just disappear off and at the same time you have that horrific bravado of a prison officer standing up and saying you're going to somewhere that I would like to go, and that seems to me to stand for like one of you know the worst moments of the 20th century. That whole um, level of subterfuge and exploitation.
1: We leave the survivors in the camp thinking that yes, they've been left behind, and that their comrades have gone off and been taken home. In reality, what happened was that from each of the three camps, these transports were taken to the nearest NKBD prisons and in small numbers, so generally sort of one by one, so that they, were, they were taken off and they were taken down to the basement. So, for example, the prisoners of Starobelsk, they were taken to Kharkov, the nearest um, city, and they were taken to the NKBD headquarters there. And they were put in, you know, a sort of holding and then they were taken off one by one down to a soundproof basement uh, where they were invited into a room where two men sat at a desk and the two men would be sitting there and one would ask the prisoner his name and rank his date of birth then he would say you may go and as the man turned to go another man would step out and they using a method that had been perfected by the Czechists earlier, as a sort of very swift and efficient form of killing someone, he would be shot through the uh, lower part of his uh, neck, close to the occiput, and the bullet goes straight through your brain and out through the forehead. So, a single shot, minimal loss of blood, immediate death, and then dragged out and put on a waiting truck. They were then piled up on the trucks and they were taken to a nearby park, Piattikadki Park, where graves had been prepared. Um, and they were placed in the graves, thrown in the graves, and covered with lime, chalk, to speed up the decomposition process. And this process went on throughout April and a large part of May, half of May.
0: Mm. It's such... um, that part of the story is completely chilling. But I think this, this particular scene has a different tone to it. Could you tell us where you would like to go for it, please?
1: Yes. So the third scene, we're in July 1940. So a little bit of two or three months after the events that we've just been talking about. And we're in a camp called Gdyazovets, which is near Vologda in the far north of Russia. And there are just under 400 men in this camp and they are taken from what's left of Um, Starybilsk, Kozhalsk, and Ostashkov camps and these are the survivors. Um, So what happened in uh, the end of April and May is the, uh, the survivors got called to transports in the same way that other people got called to transports and so this is part of the reason why they have so little insight into what happened to their colleagues because they too get taken off on trains and they get taken off in one direction and they think oh you know yes we're going west that's great and then the train starts moving in a different direction and their hearts sink and they go oh no we're going to be sent to Siberia. They're taken to a transit camp called Pablishev Bor for about six weeks and then they're transferred to this camp in Volokta called Gryazowiec and here these 400 men remain from June 1940 until September 1941. So Whereas the previous three camps, they spent just seven to eight months. These guys spend over a year. And it's a very, it's one of the most sort of neglected parts of this story, precisely because a lot of the narratives around Katyn follow the victims and therefore stop in April 1940 and move on to the crime, its discovery in 1943. But actually for the survivors... It's a very, very different and very peculiar sort of limbo that they live in. So they have no idea that anything sinister has happened to their comrades. And they find themselves in a camp where, compared to, if you imagine the, you know, the the, the cramped and unpleasant conditions of four and a half thousand men in a camp, we've now got a mere 400. It's the summer. The weather's lovely. The regime is rather lax, although the interrogations continue. They're rather more, less urgent and they're not particularly, you know, they've, they've got used to them by now. They're rather repetitive. Um, there's not a great deal of work that they're expected to do. The food is passable. And what happened in Glyasovets is really fascinating from a, a sort of, I suppose, a kind of Petri dish of what happens when men lose hope, so Joseph Chapsky, to me, exemplifies uh, um, he's a man of extraordinary character and great sort of moral dignity and very unusual in this respect and um, really I you know one of those characters who i I just feel an enormous kind of personal connection to having from from writing about him.
0: I know, but I think what I'd say about him as well is I was compelled to go and find a photograph of him. I was <laughs> Six foot five. He's, just, and he's <laughs> so tall. He's got this great, cheerful face. Yeah. And you think, how could this guy have been through such horrible circumstances? Because he seems... I don't know if you've got this. You'll, you'll have a much better sense of him, of course, having spent all the time in the research room. But he seems like he's an optimist (laughs) in in all situations I think optimist
1: almost underplays his he's a man of enormous kind of spiritual depth and I think he just sees goodness in other people that reflects yeah. his own goodness, yes. And so he never gives up the hope and he's later involved in the search for the missing officers. And there are scenes of extraordinary kind of Kafkaesque absurdity as he wanders around yeah. Moscow trying to get answers out of various, <laughs> yes. as you put it very put it very well, sort of laconic NKVD officials, uh, head honchos who, who sent him on a wild... And they probably country. didn't
0: know what to make of him at not, all. Not at
1: all. <laughs> But but here we have him in Krozovitz camp giving a, a lecture about Marcel Proust. So Chapsky was an artist and a writer and he his two great loves were Paul Cezanne, artist Paul Cezanne and Marcel Proust. And it is just this wonderful image because actually to me it actually looks like a sort of Cezanne picture. They're sitting by the little river that runs through the middle, the Muromka, that runs through the middle of the Kredowicz camp. And he has a group of friends around him. The sun is shining and... From memory, he delivers this lecture about um, "À la recherche du temps perdu," you know, and he's talking about Proust, and he got, and he later publishes it as as a book, and in fact, it was reissued a, a year or two ago you know again you get this feeling of this tremendous sense of spiritual longing and actually as I talk about it now it it suddenly makes me think about what we've been going through during this pandemic and the lockdown and the thirst for sort of cultural consolation the you know I don't know about you but one of the things that I have missed most is you know interacting with art and photography and um, being able to go and see things and listen to music and all of these things and and it is that thing of a thirst, this tremendous thirst that these men have.
0: Well, it's interesting to see that on the level of like, when everything's taken away from you, what can sustain you? And it seems in his case, it's this absolute adoration he has and passion mm. for mm. art mm. and for literature, Completely. which for people in our world, <laughs> actually the <a> consoling <laughs> to itself. No. So, so we'll be discovered one day, but it's so, so vivid in this setting that, you know, we're, months after this appalling massacre which has um completely you know taken away such such minds and such culture from from the polish people but they yet Still, they are in well the
1: <laughs> and obviously this is you know the important part of this is they don 't know this, so obviously they wouldn 't be doing this if they had the slightest inkling and and for the year that they remain or the fifteen months that they remain in Govit, they really don 't have any inkling you know they're, again they 're denied correspondence with their families for quite some time, um, and when the correspondence is finally allowed towards the end of thousand nine hundred and forty so after a break of of you know, nine months they start getting letters from relatives saying, have you heard anything from so-and-so? I haven't heard from him since March or April 1940. Have you heard anything from, you know, my husband, my brother, my cousin, whatever. And at this point, they are very far from suspecting anything sinister. They simply think, well, obviously, if we're stuck here, our comrades must also be stuck somewhere, probably worse, further you know, probably in the farthest reach of Franz Josef Land or Kola, and they can't—they're not allowed to write. So, it's important, I think, to recognise in in looking at the chronology from the survivors' perspective and from the contemporary perspective, the fact that, um, you know, knowledge of, of of the terror was very limited. You know, the Soviet Union had kept itself very isolated from the rest of the world, and it was very, very far from anyone's imagination to think, you know, the first thing that you think of is not going to be mass murder at this stage. You know, and again, in the context of the war, we're in an early part of the war, that the ghastliness of the things that seem to us to to exemplify World War II, um, and, and that dreadful era of the twin horrors of Nazism and Stalinism, was not Known to them in the same way that it Mm. is to us. But what I'm speaking
0: to here is 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 such an important point, which goes beyond this um, particular subject, and it just really connects with the telling of history. Is that, you know, we think about histories in in very different ways to those who experienced it did. So to to find a point of view to follow a character like Yusuf through. Is to be presented with some quite strange dynamics. Yes. You know, not knowing, not knowing what's going on in the early part of nineteen forty because you're in a prison camp. Yes. Or not knowing or not knowing where your friends are. Yes. And I think, in that sense, it helps us understand, you know, the, these characters in the story, of course, but it helps us as well. I don't know, to, to see the dilemmas that they're facing. I, I agree, clearly.
1: I agree, and it's one of the things that most fascinates me about writing about history is looking from the perspective of people who are sort of living through it without the context to understand it in the way that, in the way that we do. And so, you know, for these 395 men, actually one of the things that happened in this camp was the, the by definition, the people who survived belonged to sort of very distinct Groups, So, you know, obviously a big question is why did these people survive and why did the others not survive? And, um, you know, this is one of the most profound questions about the Katimaska, why were these men killed and these other ones weren't? And what we do have since the 1990s is we have a limited number of document, NKBD documents amongst which um, is information about the um, order on which these particular men were saved. And they were saved for very different reasons. So some were saved because they had agreed to uh, cooperate because they were pro-communist. They proceeded to form a kind of faction within the Griezowicz camp that became known as the Red Corner. And they, um, in, in, in stark contrast to the bigger camps where there hadn't been any kind of... Uh, room for that sort of favoritism. In Ghezowiec's camp, the Red Corner was cultivated very carefully by the NKVD. They were given special privileges. um, And there's a whole other element of the story, which, uh, again, is fascinating about um, uh, NKVD interest in forming a a kind of Soviet-run Polish division. Uh, This is uh, with the ultimate aim of fighting the Germans and this is in October 1940 so long before long before the invasion and considered in very different terms that's a whole other, other story which I don't have time to go into here but there was that faction there was a faction of the kind of uber patriots and, and you know you might ask well, why were a number of very very patriotic almost sort of proto-nationalist poles saved when many of their milder Uh, comrades were murdered. And it's very interesting. So uh, anyone who was of particular interest to the intelligence department of the NKVD, anyone who was thought to have a very particular skill, you know, a note was made in their records, and they were marked for survival. I mean, it doesn't fully explain it, because there were many extremely skilled uh, military officers and uh, men who were sent to their deaths. But there were a number who were saved who were energetically anti-communist and the the, the chief of these was uh, the the single general who was in Grozovitz camp called general Volkovitsky who was a <laughs> extraordinary character um who had fought in the Russian Navy when he was a young man and had acquitted himself with such incredible bravery that he had not only received a top medal, a George medal, but he'd been immortalised in a novel called Tsushima. And um, it's quite possibly because of his fame as a sort of fictional figure that the NKBD didn't dare get rid of him. And then there's those,
0: the Soviets still allied with Nazi Germany at this point. So there are some of you know, kind of German heritage in Poland. Absolutely,
1: see. yes, and so that's another category of uh, people who'd been saved on the request of the um, uh, of the Germans or the Lithuanians. You know, so these included you know, what what you would call Volksdeutsch. So, before the war in nineteen thirty nine, Poland was an ethnically very diverse country. It had significant minorities of German, Ukrainian, Belarusian, and Jewish minorities, and yes, yeah, so there were all these different factions, and in fact. Uh, when they arrive in Grosevets and they realise that they're going to be here for a very long time, the hope that the war would soon be over and that the very forlorn, when you think about it from a British perspective, you know, the, the Poles had believed so strongly in the fact that the British were going to ride to their rescue. Um, and this had sustained them throughout the winter of 1939 to 40. And when they find themselves six months later marooned in further Soviet um Uh, Union, you know, in in Vologda, which isn't quite Siberia, but it nearly is, they lose hope. And as they lose hope, these factions start to form. So the red corner becomes more vociferously you know, pro-communist and quite a lot of people throw in their lot with them because they, you know, they make a calculation. They think maybe this is the only way I can survive. You have the Volksdeutsch who start energetically discovering their, you know, pro-Nazi sympathies because they reckon that this quite rightly actually uh, might give them a route back to Poland. You have the patriots who become even more vociferously patriotic. And then you have a large number of people in between. And amongst these are the men like Joseph Chapsky, who just try not to get involved in the arguments. But it was a period of time that was typified, you know, by a lot of infighting um, caused by despair um, and by, you know, a lack of hope. And it was not to be ended until this extraordinary moment uh, in uh, June 1941 when they hear the announcement on the propaganda, uh, you know, loudspeaker uh, about the fact that the Nazis have invaded the Soviet Union, and from that point on, between that date and uh, early September, when they march off to join the Polish army, there's another sort of extraordinary moment where they are free, but not free, where they're they're liberated within the camp, and you know all hell breaks loose, um, of this kind of joyous outburst of 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 happiness and hope. Um, but it it takes the whole summer before they are actually able to leave the camp.
0: Just to to bring this to some kind of clarity, could you just state um, what the numbers were then of the people who who survived to live in in this camp?
1: So, out of all the prisoners from the three camps, so there were uh, fourteen thousand eight hundred roughly prisoners from the three camps, and out of those, three hundred and ninety five men survived.
0: And I do have, because we're kind of, I suppose, taking the long view now. Because um, I just want to get some kind of historical perspective on it. How, you know, is this story kind of told today? Is it still very, very conflicted? And is it is there still lingering mistrust between the Poles and the Russians because of everything that happened, or? Is it left alone? Can you give us some sense on that?
1: This is still a very much a alive story, unfortunately. And um, part of that stems from the fact that, obviously, because the fiction was maintained that Katyn was not a Soviet crime for so long, and it was the truth about uh, what had happened was only revealed in the early 1990s with the collapse of communism, because the relatives of um don't forget that the bodies that were found in 1943 were only the bodies of the prisoners of one camp so the relatives mm-hmm. of the officers and other prisoners who'd been killed from the other camps never even had you know they didn't have a body they didn't have a place of death they didn't even have a certainty of death until these revelations were made in the collapse of communism so there is a legacy of tremendous pain and resentment um And it goes in waves. So things improve and then things get worse and then things improve and things get worse. At the moment, I'd say it's not terribly good. And that's probably an understatement. Um, I I think what happened was throughout the 2000s, things began to improve. There was a lot of scholarship and uh, sort of cooperation between Russian and Polish scholars and Ukrainian scholars. Um, But then in 2010, we had a sort of further disaster that occurred, which simply... With the aeroplane clash. Yes, so this was the 70th anniversary of the Katyn massacre. There was a um, big event planned in the Katyn forest at the memorial site there, which had been built uh, during, um, in the early 2000s. Putin at the time was prime minister. Uh, He attended a ceremony with the then prime minister of Poland, Donald Tusk. And then the president of Poland was flying out with um, a large party of dignitaries to do the Polish part of the celebration, which had the form of a kind of pilgrimage. And uh, they were flying on the presidential plane when it crashed just outside Smolensk, killing everyone on board.
0: Mm. And this is quite close proximity to Katyn... Isn't yes,
1: it? so Smolensk is the nearest, it's a small mm-hmm. military airport that's uh, it's the closest airport to Katyn Forest, and Katyn is where the ceremony was about to take place. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of this, it, sort of relations actually improved, there was a, a lot of, sort of sympathy from Russians towards Poles, but subsequently these things have soured and the, the, the sort of conspiracy theories about whether this was, you know, a Kremlin inspired act of sabotage have persisted. Um, The current government in Poland has sort of cultivated a a particular sort of conspiracy laden uh, stance towards Russia. And then of course, Putin as well has moved in a particular direction of hostility towards the West. And although I think, you know, politically in Poland, Katyn is not quite such a live issue as it was a few years ago, it remains very much, you know, there's a whole chapter in my book about the the mm-hmm. legacy of it and the sort of toxicity of that legacy and that's partly to do with what happens when you lie to people on such an industrial scale and the legacy of that is the fact that people are very willing to believe conspiracy theories and that therefore you get this kind of dreadful sort of hall of mirrors where you just, where is the truth? Where is the truth? You know, and this is... Mm-hmm. I think, very relevant to our current age.
0: There's one, um, there's there's a personal aspect to this story as well that I should ask you about, mm. which is to do with a revelation that you had during the process of researching this. Is that correct?
1: It is correct, yes. Um, so I first started researching this in uh, sort of 2012, 2013. I was actually working on another book at the time about Gerda, a photographer, Gerda Tara. And my father had died in 2012 and left me this very small box of papers which had belonged to his father and I found there evidence that um, my grandmother who had died long before the war she died when my father was a very young child that her brother was killed so my great uncle was killed at Katyn. I mean I, I can't claim any particular emotional resonance to this because I didn't know I had a great uncle I don't think my father would have been aware of this I'm not mm-hmm. sure that my grandfather would have been aware of it but I think what it does tell you is the fact that um, you, it's very difficult to touch on this subject in Poland without fam- finding a family that wasn't affected by it. So it's a very widespread thing that, you know, if you're of Polish heritage, I, I'm half Polish, um, if you're of Polish heritage, it, it, you don't have to look very far before you find that kind of connection.
0: I can absolutely see that that's the case. Well, listen, Jane, I've got one last question before we let you come back out of the story to 2020... Where are we? 2021 now We are. The thunderstorm. <laughs> yes. Goodness me. Yeah. If you could um, bring a memento back, a tangible memento, some kind of material history that spoke to this story in a way that was meaningful to you? What would you like to have?
1: Well, so I have chosen a Christmas decoration that was created by a graphic artist called Edward Manteuffel when he was a prisoner in Starebilsk camp. So obviously we've spoken about the tremendous talents of the men who were imprisoned in these camps and uh, Manteuffel was a young graphic artist, designer, set designer... And Joseph Chapsky describes the fact that at Christmas, when they weren't obviously allowed to have any kind of official celebration, but they did their best to have a sort of very humble, secret celebration amongst themselves. And everybody got together trying to find little ways of making it special. And this artist created uh, tiny little decorations. And obviously, they've not survived, of course, but I'm taking it as a kind of imaginary physical object because I think it's a thing of beauty in this very desolate setting.
0: Wow, what a choice. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a lot about a very difficult piece of history today, but the way you've approached the story, the way you've researched it is really, really impressive. I think it's um, a tremendous account.
1: Thank you so much, a Peter. A very
0: dark piece of history. So congratulations Thank you. on that achievement. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really fascinating. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Jane Rogoyska about the Katyn massacre and her new book, Surviving Katyn, Stalin's Polish Massacre and the Search for Truth. It was published last week in hardback by One World. To read more about the characters and the places that are featured in this episode, please do head to our website, tttpodcast.com, where you can browse our full library of travels into the past. There's more than 80 episodes there for you now. We've received some really kind messages from listeners over the past few weeks, so thank you if you have taken the time to write to us. We always appreciate it. Otherwise, that's it for this week. We're going to be back as ever next Tuesday, but from me for now, goodbye.